invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we've been in a series through the book of Daniel as we've worked our way chapter by chapter, and we come up to chapter 9 this morning and excited uh, to bring this message to you, to open up this passage uh, together. As many of you know, Daniel at this point is a servant of God. He finds himself in exile in uh, Babylon. Now that the Babylonians have been removed, he finds himself in the kingdom of the Medes and Persians under the rulership of Darius, as we read about in the first verse here. And Daniel has been in exile for a long time now. Uh, Daniel has, was taken away when he was um, in his teens, most likely. He's been there for some 60 years, so probably in his 70s at this point. And all along, he's trusted his God. All along, he has relied upon his God. And he's, as we're going to see even here, not only one who has been constant in prayer as part of the strength and the secret of his strength in Babylon, uh, but also one who was devoted to God's word, to know his word, to study it, and to trust it as well. So Daniel chapter 9, uh, we'll begin reading at verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter. This is the holy and inspired word of God. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. 
While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So far from God's holy word. And I ask you to please keep your Bibles open as we consider this chapter together. And before we do, let's pray that God might open our eyes to see uh, his work, his glory revealed to us here. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word uh, given long ago to your people and yet living and active, good for us today. We ask, Father, that you would open up our eyes to see the wonder and the beauty and the glory of your work in history, even as it brings us forward to the work that you've accomplished in Jesus Christ, uh, the one who has uh, come to save his people and to usher in everlasting righteousness, even as Daniel looked forward to. May our eyes be fixed upon him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been making our way through the book of Daniel, you might think to yourself that Daniel is a rather mysterious figure, right? We, have, we were introduced to him back in chapter 1 when he was just a youth, likely in his teens, and at that time, he was living in Jerusalem, probably on his way to some royal position, some nobility, a wise man in the courts of the king. But rather, God had a different story intended for him, different plan for him. Nebuchadnezzar comes up against this city. He was the king of the Babylonians, a mighty army. And he takes captive a number of the nobility and wise men from Jerusalem, including Daniel and his friends. And we follow the life of Daniel in various episodes uh, throughout the, these chapters. Daniel's brought into the king's courts to be trained in the ways of Babylon, uh, to learn the ways of Babylon, to be introduced to the Babylonian gods. And yet Daniel shows faithfulness to his God despite his circumstances, despite the um, difficulties and the tragedies that really has befallen him and his people, yet he holds firm to his God. He trusts his God even at a young age. And as Daniel seeks to live for his God, even in Babylon, in foreign courts where his faith and his religion are not welcomed, yet Daniel shows faithfulness and trust to God in the midst of it. Daniel is tested at various times. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream at one point, and he demands the wise men, including Daniel and his friends, to interpret this dream, but none of them are able to do so. And so Nebuchadnezzar ends up sending out his guard, Arioch, the captain of his guard, to slaughter all of the wise men because they cannot tell him his dream. But Daniel tells the guard to hold off. He prays to his God who answers him, reveals the mystery of the king's dream, and Daniel then presents that revelation to the king, saving himself and the wise men of Babylon. Daniel's friends are at one point tested whether they will bow before this image that this same king, King Nebuchadnezzar, sets up. Will they give way? Will they bow down to this God rather than their own God? In a sea of people who bow in idolatry to this set-up image, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand tall. And God then rescues them from the fiery furnace. 
Later, Daniel himself is um, b- brought before uh, this king, King Belshazzar, one who acted in great um, blasphemy against God, taking the vessels that belonged to God, drinking from them, and speaking down to Daniel. And Daniel comes before this king with his shoulders back, his chest forward, speaks mightily to this king what God is to do with him who will soon dethrone him. And then in chapter 6, right, Daniel's life is exciting. Daniel's life is facing trial after trial. He's trusting in his God. And then the greatest test comes as a decree goes out from another king, King Darius, that all must uh, pray only to the king for 30 days. But Daniel prays to his God, even as we see exemplified here in Daniel chapter 9. Right, during the reign of Darius, Daniel prayed toward Jerusalem where the house of his God was, trusting in his God. The consequence for not obeying the king's decree was to be thrown into a den of lions. And Daniel says, so be it. Daniel continues to pray to his God and, and is thrown into this den of lions. The stone the next day is rolled back. Daniel comes out of the grave because his God closed the mouths of the lions and saved him and rescued him, right? In all of these stories, right, from beginning to end in the life of Daniel, he seems like a mysterious figure. And we might say, what power? Or we might ask the question, what was the source of his strength? Because if you're like me, you recognize that trials come before us all the time and I'm often looking for how do I remain faithful and persevere in the midst of these difficulties and trials? How did Daniel do it? You might imagine walking into, you know, Barnes and Nobles, going to the self-help or should I say the Christian section in Barnes and Noble, right? And you go there and you might see the title, right? You know, The Secret to a Strong Life. You know, from Dan, you know, five secrets from Daniel's life for a strong life. But it's not much of a secret if you actually look, just reflect upon Daniel's, what's revealed to us here. There's no need for the self-help book in the Barnes and Noble, right? Daniel's source of strength was simple. He trusted in his God. And that trust led him to pray and to know his word. Not much, not much glamour there, right? His life looked glamorous from a Christian's perspective, right? We see one living for God and for his glory in Babylon. But the foundation upon which he did all of these things was very simple. He trusted in his God and so he prayed and he was in his word. And this is what we see in the opening here in Daniel chapter 9. Prayer. And he's reading God's word. He's reading the prophet Jeremiah. Notice what it says. In the first year of his reign, that's King Darius, the the king of the Medes and the Persians. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years, right? So we open up with Daniel reading his Bible. And Daniel is reading specifically the prophet Jeremiah. If you turn with me just to a couple of passages, a number of things we could could draw out here. But in the prophet Jeremiah, Daniel may have been reading these very words. Jeremiah 25, verse 11 and 12. Jeremiah is often known as the weeping prophet. He brings a message of destruction and desolation because of Israel's constant and persistent rebellion against their God, and God is bringing the curses of his covenant with Israel upon them in judgment. And so notice what it says here in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11 and 12. Jeremiah writes, this whole land, speaking of the land of Israel, shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon in that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Right, so Daniel is reading this, meditating upon what Jeremiah the prophet had said, and he realizes that these 70 years are nearly up, right? Remember we had seen Daniel early on? Uh, taken um, nearly 60-something years ago. And so it's likely that 66, 67 years have passed, and Daniel sees the prophecy of Jeremiah 
soon to be fulfilled. He reads of the prophet Jeremiah saying 70 years and God will begin to restore his people. And it's this promise of God, right, that Daniel trusts. He knows that God cannot speak anything false. He knows that God is the one who has brought this desolation upon them and therefore it's he who then can restore them and bring them back. He knows that it's his God who sets up kings and removes kings. He knows that it's his God who is the sovereign over history, that all events unfold on this earth according to his purposes and his plan and his decree. And therefore, when Daniel read this in Jeremiah, he did not doubt it, but trusted it. And he likely got very excited, right? The day of restoration is coming. The day of restoration is soon. God is about to act as he has promised. And what does this lead Daniel to do? To pray, right? It doesn't lead him to inactivity, right? Often we, we, we sort of can, as Christians today, right, read God's word and say, well, I know in the end Christ wins. I know in the end the nations come to him. I know in the end, right, these things happen and therefore we don't need to do anything. No, that's not the, what we see throughout the scriptures, right? God has ordained the end, but he also uses the means of his people through their prayers and through their witness to bring about his purposes. So Daniel, as he knows that restoration is coming, he, he prays to his God. And that's what we get as the kind of the big meaty section of this chapter here. Daniel's prayer, then followed by God's answer. Right? Those are going to be the kind of the two main points as we think about this chapter. Daniel's prayer and God's answer. But something to keep in mind, and something I've been really um, noticing throughout the scriptures lately, um, and maybe something that's simple to, and everybody else recognizes, but something that's been striking me is that so often God answers his people in a way that far surpasses the guilt and the request that they may be bringing before God, right? Uh, this past Thursday, we were looking in Ezekiel chapter 16, and we had read that chapter last week for our 1030 service. And in that chapter, you know, a lot of commentators will say, and people will say, well, this chapter lacks decorum, right? It's, it's kind of a gross chapter, um, of, of, and, and the wickedness and the grossness of sin is highlighted in terms of a kind of spiritual adultery, and, 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 it, and it's, it's in very graphic terms. And so it's often, you know, thrown at that chapter as an accusation, well, this lacks decorum. But the whole point is that it's meant to lack decorum, to show us the grossness of our sin. But what ends up happening in that chapter is God deals with the grossness of the guilt of his people. He shows that the beauty of his grace is far greater than the ugliness of the sins of his people, right? God acts in a way that far surpasses what his people um, even request. And so too we see with Daniel here. He requests restoration as God had promised, right? He's praying God's word back to him, asking that God would restore as he had said, right? Forgive us and restore your city that's called by your name. But we'll see in God's answer that, that he gives far more than what Daniel even asks for. He promises Daniel far more. Now he's going to tell Daniel, you have to wait longer. More, there's more to come. But God gives his people, even through Daniel's prayer on behalf of God's people, far more than Daniel could have ever imagined. Reminded of what Paul says before we jump into Daniel's prayer here. When he says that what no eye has seen, no, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And we see something of that here as we think about Daniel's prayer and God's answer. So first, let's think about Daniel's prayer. Right? Daniel knows restoration is coming, and so he prays that God would restore them. But he also recognized that the reason they're in exile, the reason that God brought them into the land of the Chaldeans, is that... They sinned against their God. And so Daniel's prayer is filled with various expressions of asking God to forgive. He owns and recognizes his sin and the sin of his people before God. 
He recognizes their transgressing of God's covenant. He recognizes their rebellion against him time after time. He recognizes their guilt and their shame, right? All of these different synonyms for their sin against God. Daniel opens all of it up, comprehensively laying it before God, asking and pleading with him that he would forgive them because he knew that God wasn't going to simply restore them without dealing with their sin. God brings a people back by cleansing them, by renewing them, by, by removing the guilt and the shame that they might again be with him. And so too, when we think about the work of God in, in reconciling people to himself and bringing sinners back to him, yes, God says, come as you are, but you're not going to leave as you are if you're with the Lord. He's going to change and transform and cleanse and renew you by his grace. And so Daniel, knowing that to be restored means to be restored to God, to come into his presence, to dwell with him, meant that their sins needed to be covered over and cleansed and removed from them. And so Daniel gives this prayer of confession. In fact, if you look at verse 20, we get a summary of what this prayer is. It says there, while I was speaking and praying... Confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. The holy hill is a reference to Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem was a city upon a hill. When the people of God from throughout the tribes came to Jerusalem um, for the Passover, right, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent as they ascended the hill of God to enter into the presence of God in Jerusalem. And so Daniel tells us what his prayer is. He's confessing his sin and the sin of his people and presenting his plea, asking the Lord for something. He's confessing and pleading for God's mercy. Now, we're not going to walk through every detail of this prayer, though it is significant and though it is important and also instructive for us, right, in learning how to pray and learning to grow in prayer. But we want to simply focus upon the confession that Daniel makes, And the need for God's people, the need for us, that if we're to be restored to God, to know him, the one for whom we were made, the one uh, in whom our hearts can rest truly and only, that we must own our sin, even as Daniel does, before God and his people. And throughout this prayer, Daniel contrasts God's faithfulness with Israel's unfaithfulness. He contrasts God's righteousness with Israel's shame. He contrasts God's mercy with Israel's rebellion. And then in verse 11 through 14, he recognizes that God was right and God was just in bringing about the punishment that he did upon Israel. Notice what it says in verse 11 through 14. All Israel has transgressed your law. And turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, right? So the people of God had the law of Moses for a long time. They knew the consequences. Right? When God brought these judgments upon them, it wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't that God finally got fed up with them. It was that God had told them long ago, these are the consequences for rebellion. And he was patient with them, but his patience did end. And that through this judgment, he would restore them, he would discipline them in order that they might be purged and refined. And notice again what it says there in the middle of verse 11, the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled over us by bringing upon us a great calamity. Right? These are the things that God had warned them against and he brings upon them. And yet, in the midst of Daniel's confession, there are two things that he holds on to and they're related things, right? The first comes in verse 15. He reminds the Lord that he had saved his people from enemies once before. He reminds the Lord what he has done in the past, right? He says in verse 15, Oh, now, now, O Lord, 
our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself at, as, as at this day. We have sinned and we have done wickedly. He reminds how God had once brought Israel out of Egypt. And the reason that God brought Israel out of Egypt was, of course, to lavish his goodness upon them in the land of the living. But first and also, and first and foremost, that he might gain glory over Pharaoh. You see, God had placed his name upon his people. His name was tied to them. Their disgrace brought him disgrace in a sense. And therefore, for the glory of God's name, he rescues his people from Egypt. And so too, God had placed his name upon Jerusalem. It's why at the end of Daniel's prayer, he says this in verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Now, you might have seen this taken out of context, applied to random cities here and there, but this was the city of Jerusalem that this was applied to, the city called by God's name, a city that was meant uh, to be a replication, a, a, a foreshadowing of that heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city of God. But this was the place where God's name dwelt. The temple was there. God dwelt there, right? All that was tied to his name. And so on the basis of what God has done in the past, and on the basis of God's desire to glorify himself, Daniel asks that he would act. Notice the, the culmination of his prayer, right? He confesses his sins. He grounds it upon what God has done in the past and the glory of his name. And then his prayer culminates with this request. O Lord, in verse 19, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because of your city and because of your people are called, who are called by your name. So Daniel is praying for the fulfillment of what God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah. Secondly, we have then God's answer, which goes far beyond what Daniel could have asked. So as Daniel's praying, this angel, messenger of God, Gabriel, appears to him. He says that his word was heard right when he spoke, and he was immediately sent to Daniel, that he might understand what would take place. Remember, Daniel was thinking restoration is coming, and he's getting excited about that. But through the, uh, through the messenger, the angelic messenger Gabriel, God is going to tell Daniel, I'm going to do far more than what you're expecting, but I'm also going to take more time to do it. Daniel You've been in exile for 60 plus years. You're an old man at this point. And I know you're looking forward to restoration. And there will be a part, part, part restoration. But more is to come beyond what you can see. And this is what Gabriel begins to reveal uh, to Daniel in verses 24 through 27. Now these have been referred to as the dismal swamp of the Old Testament. Um, if you're any, at all familiar with them, you'll know that hundreds, literally, well, I've been told at least 180 interpretations of these verses um, have been given. Now, I was thinking about how best to tackle these verses as God's answer to Daniel. Um, and I don't think it would be helpful to refute every op objection that I have to every other interpretation, only to point out two large problems that remove most of these 180 interpretations. Gabriel reveals to Daniel that, as he says there in verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed. 70 weeks are decreed. Now, a number of commentators had said that each week is referred to as years. So every week would equal seven years. Each day would be a year. So you get a total of 490 years. And then commentators will try to take those 490 years and try to align it with very strict chronology. The, you know, these first seven weeks refer to this. The next 62 weeks refers to this. The last week refers to this. The problem with this is that numbers throughout Daniel have never been literal. They're always symbolic. And in fact, if you think about the number 70, it brings the two most used numbers throughout the scriptures, 7 and 10. Seven throughout scripture is always a number of completion. Think of the days of creation, right? 
the seventh day crowns God's work of creation. It's perfection. It's the number of completion. So Daniel is being, to Daniel is being decreed 70 weeks, a period of completion, a, a period that encompasses the whole of it, at the end of which will be the completion of all things. And if you're tracking, I hope you are, it's, you'll also remember that similar visions were given earlier in Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Visions that encompass the whole of history. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar received a dream. A dream that encompassed the whole of history, culminating with the establishment of God's kingdom covering the whole earth. So too in Daniel chapter 7, he gets a vision of the whole of history culminating with the Son of Man receiving a kingdom that, is, that encompasses the whole earth. So too, this very same time period is being covered by these 70 weeks, also culminating in the establishment and the consummation and the perfection of the kingdom of God. And if I could just um, give you the, the ending now, The ultimate point that the 70 weeks looks to, the end of the 70 weeks, is the coming again of Jesus Christ. This is what Daniel sees long ago. He sees the coming of Christ and the fullness of his kingdom, bringing with him his heavenly reward. Daniel 2, chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, all look at that one same um, uh, uh, vision of, of history. From Daniel's present to the end of it, when Christ, the King, comes again. All of them are looking at it, but from different angles. You know, sometimes you might, you know, um, maybe you're watching the baseball game and the shortstop um, dives up the middle, you know, gets to his feet quickly and throws a bullet to first base, uh, getting the guy by, you know, a, a hair split of a second. Now, when you, when you see that for the first time, right, what you want to see are replays of that. And the replays aren't going to show you the exact same angle, right? They're going to continue to show you different angles that you might glory in that play. And so, too, throughout the Bible, God often gives us beforehand replays of what he's going to do in history. And he gives us different angles on it. In Daniel 2, we're, we're, seen, we're shown how kingdoms that may appear Uh, valuable of gold and silver, God will crush by no human hand to establish his kingdom. Um, In Daniel 7, the kingdoms are depicted as beasts whom God will slay and establish the kingdom of the Son of Man. And here in Daniel 2, we see how God shows him his sovereignty over the whole of history, beginning with the restoration that will come later, and then ending with the ultimate perfection of his kingdom when Jesus Christ comes again. So let's walk through these verses rather briefly. And if you have further questions, uh, feel free to come up afterwards as well. would love to, uh, to further discuss them with you. So Daniel, as we said, begins with the 70 weeks. Now I had said earlier, seven is the number of completion. Forgot to add also that 10 is often the number of fullness. Uh, think of the 10 commandments, right? They're a summary of God's law given as the fullness of it. And so here we have the symbolic numbers of 7 and 10 brought together in terms of 70 weeks. And he says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish transgression, right? What's going to take place within these 70 weeks? Well, there's various things. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Now, we'll go back to some of these phrases in a moment. But as the angel speaks to Daniel, he says that these 70 weeks are going to be broken up into three periods. The first period will be seven weeks. The second period will be 62 weeks. And then the last period will be one week, right? So seven plus 62 plus one is 70 weeks, right? So that's the whole vision broken up into three parts. And he says this in verse 25, and we'll return to verse 24 at the end. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So what is this referring to? 
Now, I won't give every possible interpretation. I'll give you what I understand this to be referring to. Um, with most, especially within the Reformed tradition, uh, commentators would also follow along with what I am, uh, how, how I'm reading this. So what is, when do these weeks begin, right? From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. That is referring to the decree that Cyrus, who, was, who, who, who will soon be king, will issue calling all the Israelites to return to their homeland, to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. This goes out uh, from, again, the prophet, uh, rather the, the king, King Cyrus. We read about this, for example, um, in the opening of Ezra. Um, it's what... Um, gets things moving here, right? Daniel makes this prayer, and God does begin to restore Jerusalem as Jeremiah had promised. Ezra chapter 1, we read this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And he says this, this is the proclamation that King Cyrus sends out to his kingdom. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beside freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Right? So this is the beginning that Daniel is speaking about here when he says, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, right? And so the word goes out, Israelites hear it, and a number of them, not many, but some of them, return to Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. Uh, the, uh, the, the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt, and the temple is also rebuilt in Jerusalem. And Daniel says that this first period, this first seven weeks, begins with Cyrus's decree for them to return, and it ends when it says that an anointed one, a prince, um, shall come among them. Now, again, I won't give every interpretation, but that prince that is likely referred to here is the prophet, and rather the priest, Ezra. Ezra comes as one skilled. A priest throughout the Old Testament was anointed. He is an anointed one. And he came teaching God's law and reestablishing the sacrifices um, in the temple of Israel. In Jerusalem, and so this first seven, this first period of seven weeks refers to the decree given by Cyrus, and then when Ezra, the anointed one, comes to lead God's people in the confession of their sins, to restore the law of God in the land of Jerusalem, and to restart the sacrifices in the temple. So they're looking forward to that first period. The second period is much longer that Daniel speaks about. He says this next period in the middle of verse 25, for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now, all that Daniel learns about this period, the 62 weeks, again symbolic, is that it's marked by trouble. It's marked by being in a troubled time. What this period then is referring to is from the time of Ezra, even when they're thinking about when they're rebuilding the walls, they didn't rebuild it in times of peace. In fact, they had, they had hammers in one hand, swords in the others because of their enemy, right? And throughout this period, Israel is marked by, by difficulty, by trouble. Various rulers come up against them. Within this period, uh, great figures, like we read about uh, last week in Daniel 8, Antiochus Epiphanes comes with, to slaughter many of the Israelites, their period is marked by trouble, by difficulty, as they're under the rule of Greece, under the, uh, under the oppression of Rome, and so on. This is that period that Daniel is referring to. 
they're occupied by the Greeks, uh, by the Egyptians at some point. They're persecuted by, by Antiochus and under the Romans as well, who hold them um, um, down in a sense. And so the 62 weeks then, at the end of Ezra coming, now to the end of the 62 weeks, is referring to the period that is leading up to the coming of the Messiah who will appear in the final week. The coming of the Messiah in the last, of, last week of the 70 weeks. I know this is a little bit, some of us are interested, some of us may not be as interested in this, but it's this last week that is all the, mo- the more exciting because it, we begin to see the purposes of God and we've begun to see that we ourselves find ourselves in this last week. Now we can look back at the first 69 weeks that have transpired already in history and say that God showed his sovereignty and God showed his power as he himself stirred up Cyrus to give this decree for Israel to return as he gave them what they needed to rebuild the temple, and as he maintained his people in troubled times, leading up to the time of the Messiah, the final week that Daniel sees. Daniel says this, After the 62 weeks, so now we're in the final week, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, a different prince, not Ezra, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolators. This final week that Daniel is referring to, if I can simply summarize it, is referring to all that will transpire between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, to be very plain and direct about it. It's the same period throughout the New Testament that is referred to as the last days, not referring to them being short because they've gone on now for 2,000 years, but rather referring uh, to the fact that there's nothing more left to do. This is the final week And this week um, covers the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And we see this reflected in what is spoken about here. It says that after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Daniel is seeing the Messiah, the suffering servant whom Isaiah looked forward to as well, as one who would come to be crucified and cut off from the land of the living. As Christ hung between heaven and earth, forsaken by God, um, rejected by his people, crucified by the Romans and the Gentiles, he was there made nothing. It's there that the Messiah was cut off in this final week. And within that final week, enemies also will arise. The, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, likely referring to when the Romans came against Jerusalem in AD 70, destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. That was under General Titus, um, a, a Roman general. And there shall be war, desolations are decreed. And then verse 27 has intrigued a lot of people. It says that he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Now, a lot of people have read that he as referring to the enemies of God, as referring specifically to an antichrist figure who will deceive Israel into making a peace treaty with them. That's not what this text is saying. The he here who is making a strong covenant, is the same one whom Daniel prayed to earlier as his covenant's God. Notice what Daniel says in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord, which is the word Yahweh, which is God's covenant name that he gave to his people. I prayed to Yahweh, my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, and so on from there. You see, the one making a strong covenant is not the enemies of God's people, but it's the Christ. It's the anointed one. It's the Messiah himself. And we find this in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus himself doing what Daniel looked forward to hundreds of years earlier. So Daniel, rather not 24, rather 26. 
Jesus, this is the night before he's to be betrayed, handed over, and then crucified, says this to his people and to his disciples as they are partaking of the Passover. It says this, verse 26 of Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's a beautiful thing. What Jesus is telling his disciples here is actually he's promising them that he's going to come again already, right? I won't drink this again with you until we drink it again in my Father's kingdom when he comes again for them at the second coming. But notice again, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, It's he who in his blood makes a strong covenant with his people. A covenant that holds God's people. A covenant that gives God's people hope and gives us hope even today. The very covenant that we enjoy as those who belong to God. It's this covenant that Jesus established that will hold his people and strengthen his people and keep his people until he comes again. It's it's called a strong covenant because it is the covenant that Christ establishes in his blood, one that cannot be broken. The author of Hebrews speaks about it as an everlasting covenant, one that, again, cannot be rendered, cannot be severed, cannot be shattered. Christ will fulfill it. He shall make a strong covenant, and he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. When Christ's blood was shed on the cross... There was no longer a need for any blood to be shed, right? Throughout the Old Testament, they shed the blood of goats and lambs and so on. But when Christ's blood was shed, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, rendering the service in the temple obsolete and outdated. The once-for-all sacrifice has come, and the ending of sacrifices has taken place in the death of Jesus Christ. And yet, until Christ comes again... Enemies beset God's church. And ultimately, as Daniel has looked forward to already, a great enemy will arise in the end, an antichrist figure um, who will uh, deceive God's people, but even he will be defeated, as God has told us, time after time. And that's a quick overview of the 70 weeks here. I know there's probably many questions still, but if I could just summarize it and then conclude with some application for us here. We saw in these 70 weeks, the first seven weeks referring to when Cyrus issued a decree to return, to Ezra coming among the people of God. Then it was marked by troubled time for 62 weeks until the Messiah came. He came to establish a strong covenant. He came to atone for the sin of his people, to end the sacrifices of the old covenant, and to keep his people to establish them again. And he will come again at the end to fulfill this week. You see, as Daniel looked forward to the fulfillment of it, the fulfillment was the perfection of God's kingdom, which comes when Christ comes again. It's then, as Jesus promised, that we will drink of the fruit of the vine with him anew in his Father's kingdom. It's then that as Revelation 21 and 22 look forward to, Christ descends with a new Jerusalem with him in which we will dwell in the city of our God, with his name on our forehead, his name planted in that city, never to be removed, and the glory of that city to be unending and everlasting. And so as we think then about what this vision that Daniel received and why God's people received this and why we need to hear this, it's because it gives us unbreakable hope. It gives us unbreakable hope in this life. That though, as we've said, as kind of a refrain for the book of Daniel, though the wrong off seems so strong, God is the ruler yet. And though God allows for um, enemies to beset God's church at times, and at times even allows his church to be persecuted to the point of almost being extinguished, yet God will maintain his cause. The kingdom will be consummated. Christ will come again. He already has atoned for the sins of his people. He's already put an end to their sin. 
And it is, as verse 24 tells us, our great hope. Our great expectation, what is to be motivating us as we live each and every day, is something so grand, something so wonderful, something that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. Remember we said earlier that God answers Daniel far more than he asked, right? Daniel asked for restoration of the city of Jerusalem, and God is talking about bringing in everlasting righteousness and the perfection of his kingdom, never to be defiled, never to be broken. God answers Daniel far more. And this remains our great hope, as he says at the end of verse 4, to bring in everlasting righteousness. This is what Jesus brings for us, his people. And it's this, to this, our lives need to be directed. It gives us focus. It gives us hope as we are ourselves away from our homeland, right? Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that we have a heavenly homeland that Abraham sought long ago and Moses sought. And even the people of God today continue to seek a heavenly homeland. We're not yet home. We're a pilgrim people on the way. We can relate to Daniel in that way. And so too, the same hope that was given to God's people long ago, that they would remain faithful as they were in Babylon, so too we might have hope that we might be faithful to our God. And so, you know, Monday mornings are always the the preacher's go-to, right? What does it look like Monday morning? Well, Monday mornings are often kind of bland and boring and you have a week ahead of you, right, of work and hardship and things to do. But every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then especially Sunday, right, our minds are fixed there to the everlasting righteousness, to the coming of our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ, the consummation of His kingdom. And it's that that gives us hope. It's that that gives us meaning and purpose as we go about our business, right? Daniel would receive these visions, and even at the end of last chapter, it says that he went about the king's business, right? He did his work, what was assigned to him that God gave him to do. And he was able to do so faithfully because he saw and had this hope as he read God's word, as he trusted in his God, and as he walked in the light of his word. This is our hope even today. And we look forward to the end of the 70 weeks. We look forward to the coming of Christ once again on the clouds of heaven with great glory to judge the living and the dead and to usher us, his people, into everlasting life in the perfection of his kingdom forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this word that you gave through Daniel long ago. Um, A word that uh, reminds us that you are the one who knows all things, that you know it because you have planned the beginning, the end from the beginning. You are the sovereign over history. Father, thank you that you've kept your word, even as you gave it to Daniel long ago, that you did send an anointed one, a savior to come to establish a strong covenant that Christ has done in his blood. Father, that through his blood he has put an end to sacrifices, for he has shed his blood once for all. And that he has brought his kingdom, even as he preached on earth, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Father, we look forward to the day when he brings the fullness of his kingdom, the glory and the splendor of it that is today veiled and hidden, yet one day to be revealed. We look forward to that day. And we look forward to to that day also as we who belong to him today, our own selves, our own Who we truly are is hidden, and yet on that day, who we are as the children of God will be made evident and be made visible, and we will come into the glory of our King. Father, keep us hopeful, keep us trusting in you, and keep our eyes fixed upon Christ, the author and the perfecter of our salvation. We pray in his name. Amen.